The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Hopefully you've already listened to episode 38, part one, but in case you haven't, to give you a little bit of context, we are in the middle of celebrating the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, and this week we presented a talking about opera lecture on the podcast on Verdi's setting of Shakespeare's Macbeth. So the episode that you are listening to right now is actually part two of this lecture, and so it's going to pick up right at the start of act two in the opera. So if you haven't listened to part one of the episode already, then I highly suggest you do so and do that first before beginning this one so that you get all of the great background information, the plot synopsis, and musical discussion that took place in the first part of the recording. This episode picks up right where that one left off, and this is a recording of a lecture that was made several years ago, but never actually released to the public. So without any further delay, for those of you who are ready to dive back into the opera, this is Albert Inarato in a Talking About Opera lecture on Verdi's Macbeth. Two has three scenes. The first is in a room in what is now the royal castle. King Macbeth and his queen are brooding. She feels avoided. There is some exposition in the scene. Duncan's son Malcolm has fled, fearing to be accused of the murder and clearing the throne for Macbeth. But he is thinking about Banquo and the witch's prophecy about him. As Shakespeare has it in Act Three, Scene Two of the play, if it be so. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered, but rancors in the vessel of my peace only for them. Both realize Banquo and his son must die. She asks him if he will be certain of purpose to be answered, as is typical in this opera, with a sudden short, broad proclamation. Banquo, eternity opens its kingdom to thee.
We've heard just the introduction and first lines of La Luce Langue, among the most amazing Verdi arias for a woman. Just the introduction and that restless accompaniment introduce us to a daring range of keys and a thrust that is true music drama. She notes that the light fades, and she calls on the night to shield in darkness the terrible deeds. But she has a hesitation. Nuovo delitto? Nuovo delitto? Yet another crime? È necessario, she cries out. It is necessary. Then, without transition, which would have been there in the old days, Lady Macbeth dips into a new key, B minor, the black key, as Beethoven described it, and deep in her voice allows that the dead have no need of kingdoms, for them a requiem and eternity. And then another wild shift to B major as she rejoices in having ascended the throne. In the space of roughly four minutes, Verdi has revealed an entire complex personality, touched by guilt, a weird faith in eternity, and final exaltation. He has been willing to modulate through many keys to do it and to stretch the voice, too. It's an amazing display of a composer's craft in the theater. The second scene takes place on the road to England. A group of assassins meet up. In Shakespeare, there are only three. Verdi, of course, has a chorus. They have a rather jolly chorus, as Verdi would use again in Rigoletto for the courtiers about to abduct Gilda. They sing Zitti Zitti. The assassins sing Trema Banquo. They hide as Banquo comes on with his son, Fleance. He urges Fleance to move swiftly, for he has a premonition. This leads to a conventional, if tuneful, bass aria. Come dal ciel precipito, how quickly the gloom falls from the heavens.
They leave the stage, but soon Banquo is heard urging his son to flee as he is murdered. Fleance runs across the stage, pursued by an assassin as the scene ends. Scene 3. King and Queen are giving a great banquet, ironically, in Banquo's honor. As they wait for him to arrive, something that will never happen, Lady Macbeth sings a brindisi, a drinking song. This is in Verdi's most blatant style, but perhaps it suits the moment. The many dizzy trills in the vocal line even hint that maybe the Macbeths have been imbibing. An assassin appears at a side door and beckons Macbeth. Your face is covered in blood, he says. It's Banquo's. But his son has escaped. Macbeth gestures him out and announces to his guests that Banquo has been delayed. Macbeth seeks to honor Banquo by sitting in his place. But as he approaches the chair, he sees Banquo's bloody ghost sitting there. Which of you have done this, he cries, as in Shakespeare. Thou canst not say that I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. The guests are horrified. Lady Macbeth angry. Macbeth apologizes to the guests, and asking that Banquo not be forgotten, suggests Lady Macbeth sing her Brindisi again. She does, but as the guests complete the refrain with her, Macbeth sees the ghost again. Macbeth is beside himself. Ah, spirito d'abisso, he cries, spirit from hell. Gape wide, O earth, and swallow it. Fulgi, fulgi, fantasma tremenda. Flee, flee, horrible ghost. Lady Macbeth. Horrible, horrible, whisper the guests. There can be no hiding now that the couple has made a pact with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> 
Macbeth launches the axe finale. Sangue a me quell'ombra chiede. My blood, that ghost demands my blood. And he dominates the ensemble with a few flourishes from Lady Macbeth and the tenor lead Macduff is heard, expressing his certainty that the ruling couple are villains. The guests repeat their shock over and over as the curtain falls. Act three opens in a dark cavern, the home of the witches. A storm rages outside. Meanwhile, they are gathered around a cauldron into which they stir magical elements. Shakespeare's famous double-double toil and trouble is the source for a fairly extensive and none-too-subtle chorus. Then we have the ballet. This is suddenly in a different musical world than the witches' chorus. Verdi's sophistication is strongly in evidence. He wrote out a detailed scenario for Paris, stressing that the dancing was to be minimal, and the most important part of the scene was to be mimed only. That is the appearance of Hecate, who tells the witches in mime that all is ready for King Macbeth and that the apparition she will provide will satisfy him. Here is the very arresting opening of the sequence. Amidst an echo of the storm, Hecate appears. This is a major key, but one that suggests something otherworldly and strange. The scene ends with a devil's waltz. Again, there is much sophistication here, especially in the scoring, while Verdi sees to it that this is a very lopsided and sinister dance. Macbeth appears, demanding to know his fate. Shakespeare's lines are telescoped into the scene. The witches evoke three apparitions, each will speak true. The first is an armed head. Macbeth tries to speak to it, but is warned by the witches not to. A baritone voice sings off stage, Macbeth, 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 beware Macduff. Macbeth is not surprised. The second apparition is a bloody child who tells him that no one born of woman can harm him. For a second, Macbeth pardons Macduff's life and then changes his mind. The third apparition is a crowned child with a tree in his hand. As in Shakespeare, this apparition says, Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. Though this is wonderful news, Macbeth still wants to know if Banquo's issue shall have the throne after him. The witches warn him against asking, but Macbeth draws his sword. They summon yet another apparition, but this one is anything but comforting. The shadows of kings march in front of Macbeth. The last one is the ghost of Banquo carrying a mirror, showing how long his line will be. Fuji regale fantasima, cries Macbeth. Flee, royal phantasm. But this does not stop the procession. O mio terror, he cries out as the procession continues relentlessly. Macbeth turns to the witches, but they have no comfort for him. These are the rulers who will succeed him. Macbeth faints, and the witches call to the spirits of the air to revive him. There is another short dance, a waltz again, 
as spirits weave about the unconscious Macbeth. When he revives, it is to the arrival of his wife. I don't find it illogical that his wife would have tracked him down, Verdi wrote to the slightly skeptical publisher Escudier. In the first version, there had been an enormous and difficult cabaletta for the baritone. It's very effective. But Verdi seems to have thought this duet more sophisticated, even though Macbeth hardly needs urging some more bloody deeds, and Lady Macbeth, in any kind of reality, would be well on her way to the breakdown she suffers in the sleepwalking scene. Still, Verdi couldn't resist the chance for a very operatic display of double villainy. She asks Macbeth to tell her what he had seen with the witches. When he tells her that Banquo will rule, she almost screams, Lies! Death! Death! Destruction on the evil breed! Macbeth agrees, and she is thrilled to see his old spirit back. They both cry out vendetta on Macduff's family and on Banquo's survivors. at a camp on the border between England and Scotland. In an opera, there was no time for the scenes Shakespeare wrote that account for the passage of time and show the murder of Macduff's family. But the new opening of Act Four for Paris tells us all we need to know in music of great eloquence. This leads to the amazing chorus written for Paris, Patria Oppressa, Oppressed Fatherland. But here, Verdi transcends anything he was to write until his third period. In fact, the harmonic language here is actually very daring, even by the standards of Liszt and Wagner. Simply the way the choral lines are balanced and the way the orchestra is given a haunting, lamenting sonority are remarkable. Here is only a short piece. Thank you. 
This quality of suffering will not be heard again until the Requiem Mass. The tenor lead gets his aria here. He begins by bemoaning the death of his children, ah, figli, figli miei, and then continues with his aria, by now a famous one, ah, la paterno mano. He regrets greatly that his hand was not there to protect his family or to die with them. Jose Carrera sings Macduff. It's a very standard aria and is followed by a gallop during which Malcolm, Duncan's son, enters with his army. He says a few empty words of comfort to Macduff, then asks where they are. Burnham Wood, he is told. He instructs all who will fight to strip the trees and use the bark and branches as camouflage. All do as they are told, while the two tenors lead everybody in a very banal military chorus. Scene two is the sleepwalking scene. Though it's much more arresting than the march that preceded it, it is no longer the high point in the entire opera as it was at Florence. Verdi comes up with a suitably spooky theme for the strings and woodwinds, followed by a mournful tune.
We are in a hall in Macbeth's castle. A doctor and Lady Macbeth's lady-in-waiting whisper about her nightly sleepwalking, during which she speaks horrible things and makes hand-washing motions. Verdi and Maffei use Shakespeare alone for this scene, and it is in prose, not poetry, very unusual for an Italian opera. But Verdi works Lady Macbeth's scene into an aria's symmetry. Lady Macbeth appears, a pathetic figure destroyed by terror. She rubs her hands as though washing them repeatedly, but she always finds blood there. Yet here's a spot. Out, damn spot, out, I say. Brokenly, she repeats some of her words to Macbeth on the night of Duncan's murder, and she remembers seeing the king's corpse. Who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him? And there is the terrible smell of blood. It never leaves, nor will her hands ever be clean. Not all the perfumes of Arabia will sweeten this hand. Very much to his credit, Verdi manages a melody that does not repeat. He uses a soft accompaniment of a sort that played more loudly was used in Cavalletta's often. It was called a polaca. It contributes to the obsessive nature of Lady Macbeth's piece. Scene three opens to battle music. Macbeth's troops are fighting those of Macduff and Malcolm. Macbeth is contemptuous. He remembers the prophecy that no man born of woman can hurt him. Still, he is pensive. Shakespeare's line, My way of life has fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf, gives way to the only expansive aria Macbeth has in the opera, Pietà rispetto amore, it is called. Pity, respect, love are things he cannot look for. Mm-hmm. 
There is a cry of women off stage. Lady Macbeth's lady-in-waiting enters with the news that the queen is dead. Shakespeare's great speech, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, could not really be contained in an opera which was swiftly moving to its end, but Verdi does use Life's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. In any case, even if you are inclined to grieve, Macbeth has no time. His soldiers run on with terrifying news. Burnham Wood is advancing on them. He leads his troop into battle. Verdi has his quasi-fugue here, led by the trumpets. Malcolm enters with his troops and orders them to throw away the camouflage and fight to the end. Macbeth follows on and is met by Macduff, looking for vengeance. Macbeth tells him to flee. No man born of woman can harm him. But Macduff was not born the normal way. He was, as the bard has it, untimely ripped from my mother's womb. In the first version, Macbeth fell to the ground, fatally wounded, but had a short death aria. Sometimes this is restored in today's revivals, but Verdi expressly forbade it. In Paris, Macbeth is simply finished off, usually off stage. There is a moment of silence. Then there are cries of Vittoria, victory. A huge crowd assembles to hail Malcolm as their rightful king. Then in Paris there is one of Verdi's more successful martial anthems, a chink in his armor for most of his career. This started by the men has a vigorous and infectious tramping motion and makes a very brave sound. The women add their voices with a cry of joy to end the opera.
Though the revised Macbeth for Paris is a mixture of great mature Verdi and a cruder composer, it makes for a great evening in the theater. Anyone looking for Verdi's genius can find it in the first version, all of a piece, with an amazing coup de théâtre with the sleepwalking scene, or in the second version with its stunning La Luce Langue and its amazing chorus of exiles. The last carries a sense of the human Verdi, a man with a tough exterior, but a profound empathy for the sufferings of the nameless. Thank you all so much for listening to part two of episode 38 here on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this two-part format and all the information that it allows us to provide in the episode. And if you have any feedback on this or any other aspect of our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or emailing us at lectures at operaed.org. Looking forward to next week, I'm very excited to be back behind the podium again, so to speak, and we are going to be diving into all the different types of arias that we find in the opera repertoire. And to do this, I have lots of great examples lined up, some favorite arias, and we have lots of different things to discuss. So I hope you'll join me next week for episode 39. Until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.